Hello and welcome to Crowns and Constitutions, Episode 7, Feudal Law, Knighthood, and Chivalry. Now, I know I promised you in the last episode I would talk to you about manorialism and the law of medieval manners, but after further reflection, it became clear to me that more detail and explanation was needed with regard to specific rules and laws that applied to feudal relationships. In the last episode, I covered the basics of feudalism, including the basic terms and rituals involved with creating or establishing a feudal relationship. That feudal bond involved vassalage, and I covered the basic duties and responsibilities that vassalage entailed in the last episode. If you have not listened to that episode six yet, I encourage you to do so because it will help you understand what I'm going to talk about in this episode. I really do plan on covering manorialism, which is basically the relationship between the Lord and his peasants or his tenants on a manor. I will cover that in the next episode although I learned my lesson and will no longer make any promises. Today, I am going to take a much deeper dive into the nuances of feudal law and what was required of both the lords and vassals and their heirs. But before we do that, I want to summarize the so-called feudal pyramid or hierarchy of relationships, just so you understand exactly where on that pyramid I'm going to be focused today. We've spent considerable time on the establishment of the medieval monarchy in both the areas of Old Roman Gaul and Roman Britain. We saw the rise of the Merovingians and Francia and various Anglo-Saxon kingdoms in Britain. In Francia, the Merovingian dynasty was eventually replaced by the Carolingian dynasty, of whom Charlemagne is the most famous of that new and powerful dynasty. In Anglo-Saxon England, the heptarchy of kingdoms eventually consolidated under the House of Wessex, of whom King Alfred was one of the most well-known monarchs there. Now, as Germanic tribal chiefs transformed from local warlords to these respected monarchs uh, that provided for civil and administrative services along the lines of the Romans in the past, they always maintained that military leadership role. As kings, they defended and conquered new territory, and in doing so, new land opened up that the king could use to entice loyalty from others, basically purchasing military and other services. But in order to maintain this hard-fought authority and ensure preservation of the kingdoms that began to be established, feudal relationships were formed that constituted much more than a simple contract for purchase of services. The feudal relationships we will be discussing today involve lords and vassals. The top lord was always going to remain the monarch, but the direct lords under him also had vassals of their own. As warfare transformed from on-foot pitched battles to horseback, the notion of a knightly class of individuals developed over time. These knights were often vassals of the king directly, but commonly served as vassals to the king's vassals. So we can see this pyramid start to form with the king at the top and an ever-expanding wider base of vassals that began to receive fiefs as part of their commitments made to their lords. I just mentioned the king's direct vassals tended to be powerful lords in their own right. And, and these lords, 
direct vassals of the king were during medieval times called barons. The baron did not yet attain its future significance as a title or rank in the British peerage system. It simply was a more generalized term used to designate uh, a powerful lord, typically a direct vassal of the monarch in the feudal system. So when you hear me use that phrase, keep that in mind, that we're not talking about baronage as far as a, a, a title goes in, in under the English peerage system. And so if we visualize this pyramid of feudal relationships with the king at the top, and then below him his barons, and below them the knights, uh, keep in mind that a baron could also be a knight. More often than not, the barons would delegate their own obligations, their obligations to the king by creating vassalages of their own, and would use their knightly vassals to meet their duties to provide military service to the king. Now, below this intermediate level of the lords was a peasant class. The peasants would typically live in villages, which often encompassed a part of the lord's manor. We will discuss in detail these villages and manors in the next episode. Just keep in mind that the customs between the lords and their peasant tenants were different, uh, or different enough that I will refer to that, to that set of rules that govern those relationships as manorial law. Whereas in this episode, I will focus strictly on feudal law, which is the customary law that governed the lords and vassals, even including the king who was, of course, a lord. Also, keep in mind that the time period we will be discussing primarily is between 476 AD and 1066 AD, and I will be focused primarily on feudal laws that developed in Francia and Anglo-Saxon England without making any distinctions between the two, because I'm mostly interested in just getting across the concepts involved with feudal law as a general matter. Of course, depending on where or, or when feudalism was developing, there could be some differences. But generally speaking, uh, generally speaking, I want to keep that uh, uh, straightforward. And finally, I needed to find a place to briefly discuss chivalry, what it is and what it entails. And I thought this episode would be a good place to do that. Chivalry is directly connected to the notion of knight service. So I would be quite negligent if I did not at least address it, because we're going to be talking a lot about knights and knighthoods in this episode. Now, with that extremely long introduction and summary of where we've been so far out of the way, we can now dive into the details of feudal law. The Law of Lords and Vassals. Prior to 1066, which I am going to use just as a convenient point in history for discussing the development of law, prior to 1066, most of the law that governed the relations between lord and vassal were based on custom. We've discussed custom already quite a bit in this series. Customs are primarily unwritten laws governing the interactions of those within a tribe or a clan. We know some of these customs because they were codified by both King Clovis and King Ethelbert in Francia and Anglo-Saxon England, respectively. As feudal relationships began to develop over time to meet the military, agricultural, and legal needs of various individual communities, the feudal customs developed organically as well. And if you think about it, 600 years 
from about 476 to 1066. 600 years is a long time for customs to mature. Well, they certainly did. By 1066, the people of Francia and Anglo-Saxon England were organized into a system of overlapping, complex, and somewhat flexible groups of local communities that could include lordship units, clan units, a church diocese, kingdoms, and administrative districts. This is somewhat analogous to a modern United States citizen who truthfully say that they are a citizen of, just for example, the city of Chicago, a county, state of Illinois, and the United States, all simultaneously at once, with each level of authority claiming different spheres of power and jurisdiction. However, Unlike the modern United States, where each of these jurisdictions had very clearly defined territorial boundaries, such did not exist in medieval Christendom. Rather than, rather than predetermined territorial boundaries, that's what we're typically familiar with today under our nation-state understanding of jurisdiction and sovereignty. The units of authority under a feudal system were primarily based on personal jurisdiction, not territorial jurisdiction. In other words, the, the king's authority extended to all of those who offered homage and fealty to him, and those sub-vassals and peasants who remained under the authority of the king's vassals. The glue of feudalism was not randomly drawn lines on a, on a map, but real connections between peoples who were dependent on each other in some fashion. Now, within these domains of individual lords, there often were pre-existing communities organized into villages and administrative districts established by the king for the purposes of administering his kingdom, typically in the hundreds and larger units called either counties or shires, especially in England. These villages and administrative districts tended to uh, be more strictly defined than the lordship units that would come to overlay them in time. Now, we talked about these administrative structures in prior episodes, and we will d dive into the villages in the next episode. The point being that by 1066, there were multiple layers or levels of authority that simply developed over time and that overlaid a vast geographic territory, both in Europe and in Britain. Now, it's these lordship units, not so much the administrative districts, that are going to be the subject of feudal customary law. These lordship units would come into being when a king or clan chief in the early days granted a benefice, usually land, could be other privileges and immunities, to a subordinate in return for services. The nature of this feudal bond and how they were created through the rituals of homage and fealty were described in prior episode. But powerful lords and the king's barons would often delegate, like I said earlier, their own duties to provide services to the king to others. And this became especially important when these barons were expected to produce a retinue of skilled horseback riding warriors. In order to meet his obligations, the baron, the baron would leverage a portion of his fief to a knight, who in turn became obligated to provide knight service to his immediate lord. And in this way, knights became incorporated into both the system of government and land tenure feudalism. One benefit of vassalage for the vassal beyond 
a grant of land, immunity, or specific administrative office, was that his fief would pass to his heirs upon death. Although the heir may have to renew homage and fealty to the Lord, this was certainly well worth it because the customs that the Lords felt bound to follow, uh, they made it so they really had no choice but to accept homage and fealty, the heirs of the vassal. As the knightly class became more important for purposes of providing military service, they used this leverage, the vassals did, to ensure that the Lord would abide by the customs of the land and recognize the inheritability of the fief. Another key feature of this system of inheritability was primogeniture. This system, whereby the eldest son of the vassal would inherit the fief, benefited both the Lord and the vassal because the fiefs were maintained intact and not divided up among multiple heirs, which in time, after several generations, could render the fief less valuable and unmanageable. We noted this practice with respect to the Frankish Salic law and how only the male heirs could inherit. This practice would continue even as feudal tenures developed. By 1066, the personal service vassals owed to their lords became more and more commuted now to monetary payments. In other words, instead of providing, say, 50 other knights to the king in satisfaction of feudal obligations, the lord or the king became willing to accept monetary payments in lieu of actual service. This benefited everyone because the king or baron could afford to pay skilled mercenaries or warriors, resulting in better military outcomes or successes, while the vassals were were given more personal and economic autonomy. The money payments made in lieu of military service were called scotage. Other payments in lieu of service, such as personal services that could be owed as part of the feudal relationship, those payments were called aids. These payments to the king or lords essentially were taxes in the sense we understand them today because they were required, they were non-optional payments, and not subject to ongoing or renewed contractual arrangements. But having said all of that, Contrary to popular opinion, feudalism was not necessarily a one-way street with the Lord always exploiting his vassals. The system of vassalage did impose duties on, on the Lord as well. And this was especially true as military warfare became more uh, reliant on knights and developed more complex systems of military warfare. Vassals maintained significant leverage against a Lord or even the king who needed this knight service as we're going to see. This dynamic plays out quite clearly with the development over time of the concept of sizen. Sizen refers to the possessory rights of someone who is entitled to hold either land or goods. It's basically a form of legal entitlement that even a lord could not take away. One who was seized of some interest in land or goods cannot be ousted by anyone. Of course, the vassal was still bound to the Lord and could not just give away his fief, but he could subinfudate to the lower vassals, which would often require payment to be made to the Lord if that occurred. Now, you may notice a similarity between Sizen and the word possession. This is no accident. 
both concepts are related and originally actually they originally meant the same thing although by our modern times size and became associated with the concept of ownership where a simple possession simply uh, meant having control over property without necessarily being a legal owner be careful though because ownership as we understand it today in modern law was not i repeat not a concept maintained under feudal law feudalism was all about overlapping duties and obligations based on personal relationships to the extent property either movable goods or real property were implicated the term ownership as we understand it today was not understood or or, or a recognized concept in fact the word ownership was not even used until the 17th century now, let me explain why this is important. While we understand ownership to mean an absolute, undivided, exclusive right over a thing, feudal dominion over a thing was almost always limited, divided, and shared in one way or the other. Rights and duties involving a thing attached to the person. So it was more proper to say, I have a right to harvest and consume grains on this property against those of my Lord, so long as I shall live. While the Lord still retained a future interest in that same bounty of the land in the event his vassal dies, and a current, he probably also would re, uh, retain a current right to receive a monetary payment from the vassal in connection with the use and consumption of the grain on that land. At the end of the day, as legal historian Harold Berman puts it, land was not owned by anyone. It was held by superiors in a ladder of tenures, leading to the king or other supreme lord. Now, as generation after generation passed over many centuries, these feudal obligations between the lord's heirs and the vassal's heirs became more complex and crystallized into customs that were simply understood and accepted at face value. Customary rights and duties also maintained their strength over time by the very hierarchical nature of the feudalist system. One vassal could have more than one lord, in which case the lord, which he owed his highest obligation, was called the liege lord. This was often the king himself. Now in turn, that same vassal could also serve as a lord to multiple vassals below him. Being in this situation, there was little incentive for lords and vassals to skirt their duties under feudal customs that govern their relations because they also depended on others, whether as lord or vassal, to abide by their obligations. Everyone had a stake in the game, and it rarely made sense to try and cheat the system. Now, speaking of breaking promises, it should be noted this system of feudal obligations also originally formed by agreements were much stronger and more durable than a simple contract as we would understand a contract today. Virtually all rights and duties connected with a feudal bond were fixed by the applicable customs governing that bond and could not be altered or dissolved simply at the will of either party. Remember, homage was based on mutual vows, similar to a marriage contract that could not simply be dissolved voluntarily, even by mutual assent of the parties. 
Now, having said that, occasionally, if one party was in significant breach of their duties or obligations, the feudal bond could be dissolved, and this was called diffidatio, which means withdrawal of faith. If the vassal broke faith against his lord, the fief reverted to the lord. This was called an escheat. The Norman word for such a breach was called a felony. Now, other lesser breaches were called trespasses. And these terms will take on a much greater force after the Norman conquest as the English common law starts to develop. But after 1066, this concept of diffidatio also became more important than ever as vassals sought to relieve themselves from feudal ties. But prior to the 11th century, such dissolution was relatively rare. For all intents and purposes, both lords and vassals understood the relationship to be a permanent personal bond that would pass on to their heirs. Along with the fief came justice, simply out of necessity and the nature of the feudal system, which required a social order to be maintained. When it came to the administration of justice, it was widely understood throughout the West that the Lord had a right to hold court for purposes of resolving disputes among those who depended in some way on the Lord's fief for their livelihood, including his own vassals and even the freehold tenants that lived on the Lord's estates, even if they were not vassals of the Lord. In this way, this need to ensure justice and maintain social order on the Lord's fiefs resulted from the need to ensure military readiness in the event it became necessary to call on his knights and those who may be subordinate to those knights to defend the kingdom or his estates. Maintaining order among those subordinate to the Lord was crucial for this system to operate. Justice under the feudal system was not so much about imposing laws and regulations as we're so familiar with in modern times, but was primarily of and only of a judicial nature, applying relevant pre-existing customary laws to resolve individual disputes, and in doing so, creating new precedents or customs that could be carried on into the future. Seeking relief from the Lord in his court was called a suit in court. Typically, either the Lord himself or his steward, the person that served as the Lord's chief deputy throughout his holdings, would preside over the court. However, as we discussed in several past episodes, the notion of a Germanic tribal assembly remained with the Franks and Anglo-Saxons. And so while the Lord or his steward presided over the court, it was the local vassals and the tenants who actually made factual determinations and, and rendered judgments. And these individuals were called suitors. This idea carried over from the Germanic tribal assemblies, or the moots. Off, offered the, uh, they, they offered the person charged with wrongdoing an opportunity to be charged, or judged, I should say, by those who would be his equals. The Latin word for equals, in this sense, is pares, from which we derive the modern word, or the modern English word, Peers. Hence, the idea of the right of a person to be judged by his peers uh, is a phrase that was made famous in the Magna Carta itself, also found its way into other important legal documents in Europe. 
This understanding that the Lord's tenants and vassals could be judged by his peers was not something to be understood as a principle of higher, sacrosanct, fundamental law that could never be changed, but rather an outgrowth of customary practices in the moots, dating back to time immemorial even before the German migrations. It also served a very practical purpose. As we just talked about, the Lord's vassals, who were often the Lord's themselves, had every interest in maintaining the concept of being judged by one's peers, because at any point the tables could be turned on them by their superiors in the feudal system. The Lord could sue his own vassals in court, for example, for defaults and paying feudal dues or trespasses on the Lord's domain. But the defendant would still be subject to the judgment of his peers rather than the Lord himself, even in the Lord's own court. Now, in modern times, we would say this was an obvious attempt to mitigate any conflicts of interest. But while the Lord would probably prefer to judge his own case in his own court, he would be hard-pressed to argue the same against his own Lord in the event he was charged with the wrongdoing by his superior. So at the end of the day, the system maintained reciprocity when it came to rendering of judgments and protecting the interests of those even on the lowest levels of this feudal pyramid. This hierarchical system also offered those lower down in the feudal pyramid other avenues of justice. If a knight, for example, felt a judgment against him in his lord's court was wrong, he could appeal that judgment to the court of his own lord's lord. While not often exercised, there was in this sense an opportunity for what we would understand to be an appeal. Now, eventually, many of these feudal laws and customs were organized into a professional legal system, particularly by Ranulf de Glanville in 1187 AD under King Henry II in England, and were characterized under various judicial writs. These feudal customs came to be interwoven with the rest of applicable bodies of law in the late Middle Ages. But have no fear, we will come back to this in much more detail in later episodes as we start to approach the discussion on Magna Carta itself. Finally, I wanted to end this episode with a short discussion on chivalry. The word itself comes from the French chevalier, which in the last episode we mentioned, its root word derived from the Latin word for horse. Therefore, chivalry, while it assumed moral qualities over time, has its roots in the notion of a nobleman on horseback, what we know to be a knight. Knighthood, at its core, was a craft or a trade. It was a skill. It was a skill that needed to be learned. If a knight wanted to maintain his family's noble status in the future, he needed to make sure his young boys were trained and educated properly. These young boys in training were called valets, which is a diminutive of a vassal or a little vassal. In England, these young boys would be called a page, and by the time they reached about 14 years old, would be called a squire. At that point, the young man was apprenticed to a knight and became knowledgeable in warfare under the tutelage of a battle-tested knight. Upon achieving knighthood status, the new knight was presented with a shield and a sword in a ceremony, in a ceremony called a, a dubemont, from which the English practice of dubbing probably also derived. 
A form of this ancient ceremony dated back to the pre-migration eras, even before the concept of knighthood in the, medi in the medieval sense took form. We know this because we see Tacitus uh, describe such similar ceremonies where fathers would present their sons with weapons upon achieving adulthood. Certain virtues were expected to be demonstrated by a knight. Courage in battle, of course, was at the top of this list, but also loyalty, especially loyalty to his lord, because at the end of the day, the knight was still a vassal of his lord and owed him the duties of homage and fealty. Only later, after the Norman Conquest, and clerical participation during the Adubemont ceremony became more common, did the moral virtues we modern we modern uh, folks typically associate with the brave knight come into play. And it's here that we see the birth of the notion of a true Christian warrior. And with this, I think we must conclude the episode on feudal law, knighthood, and chivalry for today. And we certainly did spend much more time on nobility and knighthood. In the next episode, we will enter into the world of a medieval peasants, including the serfs, their villages, and their manorial customs that govern their lives. 